If you're here with us for the first time this morning, either ever or for a, for, for a long time, I need to let you know that this morning's message is largely predicated on the last three Sundays' sermons. And in those three sermons, we've seen that God has been at war against sin, against the devil, against death, and all manner of evil, disorder, and disease. And he has been at war with them since before the foundation of the world. We've been sharing what I'm calling supplementary scripture passages along our way to support specific topics and texts so that we can all see that we're not proof texting here. That is, we're not picking and choosing select passages and verses out of their proper context to prove a particular point that we're trying to make. For example, the passages Neil and Kate read a few moments ago help us to see that Jesus himself was confronted by and was working to defeat the devil whom he called a liar and the father of lies. Called him a good number of other things also, but in this particular passage a liar and the father of lies. And the, the book of Revelation further calls him in that chapter 12 that Kate read, the, the accuser of our brothers who accuses them day and night before our God. So he is Christ's enemy and he is our enemy as well. Another supplementary text that we haven't looked at specifically these weeks but, but helps us to develop a more thoroughly biblical Christian understanding about Easter is Jude, verses 6 through 9, and I'll, I'll finish the, the service with the last part of Jude, but listen, listen to this from verse 6 through 9. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, these are the fallen angels that we read about some time ago in Genesis chapter 3 and following, but left their proper dwelling. Jesus has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. They indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serving us, rather serving as an example by undergoing a punishment for eternal fire. But when the archangel Michael contended with the devil, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment against the devil or to the devil, but he said, the Lord rebuke you. We've seen that the devil is a created being. He is not eternal. He is powerful and must be respected, but he has been defeated already, though his final end has not yet come. So for several weeks now, we've been discovering this thoroughly biblical and Christian yet rarely explored or realized reality of God's war that he's been waging against sin, against the devil, and against death itself, and that Jesus came to fight it and win it. This is the backdrop for and a primary point of the Easter weekend that we're about to observe next week, namely Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection. At some point, this war 
in the heavenlies spilled over into the material creation and onto the earth such that we human beings created to image God and represent him on the earth were turned against our creator, which is now our natural state. And we are in that state until we respond in faith to his grace in Christ Jesus and we come to know him, to love him, and yes, to join him in his battle against sin, the devil, and death itself. Now, speaking of the fall of humanity into sin, as a matter of history and humanity, we're, we're still falling. We're still falling. It wasn't a one-time fall. We are all fallen. And perhaps the most devastating, persistent, and literally natural consequence of this fall has been the separation of human beings from spiritual realities all around us. For the first time, Adam and Eve became consciously aware of their separateness, their otherness, both from God and from each other. Not that they ever thought they were God, but they experienced something new something unsettling, something wrong. A separation, a distance, an estrangement, both from God and from each other that we share still today. In a very real sense, in the moments of their fall, Adam, Eve, and all their descendants after them, including us, became spiritually dead, just as God had warned them. And though they were still animated, what we call alive, they and we became merely material and mortal. Much was lost, both to them and also to us. And this lostness persists until today in multiplied variations. God had created Adam and Eve to walk in an unfettered, personally intimate and joyful relationship in the garden with himself and with each other. But after their expulsion from Eden, they no longer enjoyed this special access either to God or to each other. They were separate. They were other. An associated consequence, particularly relevant for us today, is that it's very difficult for us even to imagine the biblical reality of the heavenlies, as we talked at length about last week, or more generally, the spiritual realities that are formed and active all around us. This is what will necessitate a renewal and rest restoration of creation, the new heavens, and a new earth, as the Bible promises. But with Adam and with Eve and with every human being after them, we've lost the ability to discern these spiritual realities that are all around us, what the Bible calls the heavenlies. That is, un unless God, the Holy Spirit, gives us some special, momentary, or gifted insight into the spiritual realm. Either way, we have the biblical revelation. God's true authoritative, living, and eternal word written, to which, to which we must give authority and priority and take seriously as God's born-again people, 
no matter our times, no matter our experience, no matter even our doctrine or our practice, God's word has been, God's word is, and God's word will ever be supreme. Most especially in the person of Jesus Christ, God's word made flesh. And surely we are aware that the biblical revelation tends to go straight against our self-centered cultures, straight against trends of educational institutions, and straight against a relatively new but entrenched religion of scientism that presumes to replace God with itself, which is an absolutism every bit as legalistic, fixed, doctrinaire, and hostile to contrary beliefs as any right or left fundamentalist sect. Even so, as biblical Christians, we must give priority to God's revelation in the Bible, taking it seriously by believing it, by teaching it, by obeying it, and by living it out in the world as best the Holy Spirit will give us the ability to do. Also the understanding. And we are learning from God's revelation these days in this particular Easter season that God has been at war against sin, death, and all their sources, most notably the devil and his minions, since before the foundation of the world. And so he engages us. God engages us. Not with war against us, but with love and life and invitation to us to join him as his children in the battle. This is a very good place to pause and take in the central truth of our message for today. You've got it there in your bulletins, as I noted earlier. You might want to look at it just just briefly. In his ongoing war against sin, death, and their sources, that is the sources of sin and death, God in Christ Jesus enlists us to join him as individuals, as families, and as his church. In other words, this sermon is about the church of the Lord Jesus Christ engaging with him in his battle against sin, the devil, and death itself. We are to be the biblical church at war with him. Not against him, with him. And as we continue, let's make something very clear. This battle, this cosmic war, though it's been going on between God and the sources and outcomes of evil in the heavenlies since before the foundation of the world, it is not eternal. This battle will have a certain and thrilling ending. Okay, here's a teaser as well as a what do they call that when you, when you give the punchline too early? What is that called? A spoiler. Here's the spoiler, spoiler alert. The good guys win. I ruined the whole thing, didn't I?
and the, decisive, and the decisive beginning to the inevitable end of this ongoing cosmic war was the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ on the cross. The death knell for sin, death, and the devil rang with the death of Jesus Christ for us and for the sins of the whole world. Its guarantee of success and of victory was Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Or as my favorite dead theologian John Owen put it in his book, The Death of Death was effectuated, was made inevitable and effective in the death of Jesus Christ. Quoting here now, the Lord evidently and clearly, evidently means by evidence, it's, you can see it, it's evidential is the way he's using this. It's not in a conditional, it is uh, something that is plain. The Lord evidently and clearly engages himself to his son that he should gather to himself a glorious church of believers from among Jews and Gentiles through all the world that should be brought to him and certainly, I love this phrase, fed in full pasture, that, that's you guys, and refreshed by the springs of water. All the spiritual springs of living water which flow from God in Christ for there for our eternal, rather everlasting salvation. This everlasting salvation that God in Christ Jesus provides, has provided and will provide for those who believe and those whose belief becomes evident in the formation of Christ's image and character being manifested by the fruit of his Holy Spirit in his children. With that as introduction, I'd like to ask you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. Don't worry, the, the introduction is about half the sermon, maybe a little bit more than half. I'm just trying to set the backdrop because we've, we've traveled many, many spiritual and theological and biblical miles over the last three Sundays. And I'd like for us to turn our attention back to our focal text in Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 20. I won't read them separately, but we will dig into them here in just a moment. I think we did an adequate job of introducing our passage last week, so let's just review the central truth of last Sunday's sermon, which was verse 12 of Ephesians 6. It's this, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil, where? In the heavenlies. Now I know that your version probably has in the heavenly places or the, in the heavenly realms, but that's not in the text, that's added. The translators have added places or realms to help us, and I don't think it helps us at all. I think it moves us to look for a place out there somewhere, far, far away, generally speaking, as opposed to in the heavenlies, which are all around us. That's the meaning of this text, I believe, where the rulers, the, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil tread. And this is both our reality and our calling. Now what follows from verse 13 through verse 20 is an application of this truth to our lives and ministries. That is the life and ministry of Jesus' church of which we are a part. Here's another way of putting it. Now that we know about the battle, we must now prepare for the battle. 
We know this because the very next word is, therefore. In essence, now that we know about our context, our environment, our reality, and our calling, therefore, here's what we do, you and I, indeed the whole church. We put on the full armor of God. So uh, I'll just read verses 10, 11, and 12 because we haven't heard them this morning and we won't be hearing them at least in any, any sense uh, in full uh, in what, what remains. And then we'll pick it up at verse 13. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor or the full armor of God that you may be able to stand. Okay, I ask you to repeat this word, stand. Let's say it, stand. Now count how many times we encounter stand or, or a version of stand, as in withstand, in the next few verses, okay? Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full or whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So that's what we're doing. Verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over, the pre over this present darkness, against the spiritual of e forces of evil in the heavenly places or in the heavenlies, verse 13, therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm, verse 14, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. That's enough for now, but Let's just ask ourselves, what on earth or in the flesh do we have to use in opposition to or against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenlies? What, what do we have? Answer, nothing whatsoever. Now remember, I asked, what do we have in this world, on this earth, or in this flesh? Nothing. Literally nothing on the earth will do, even nuclear weapons and hypersonic missiles and all the bright things that we're coming up with these days to kill each other. Nothing is sufficient to fight this battle. And so, if we want to survive in this warfare environment, if we intend to thrive in this warfare environment, if we would be effective and useful in this warfare environment, Christian, Christian church, then we need to put on and keep on the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. That's what this passage is about. That's its message to us, to the church at Ephesus, to the whole church of the Lord Jesus Christ, of which we are a part. And I'm of the strong opinion that the work of the Christian and the Christian church in this world, in this lifetime, during whatever time and whatever place the Lord Jesus places us is primarily defensive in nature, beginning with putting on the full armor of God. Now, what I mean is that God doesn't need us to go on the offensive chasing after the devil and his minions or imagine ourselves to be doing so. That's God's job in Christ Jesus who can and who will do as Martin Luther put it so well and clearly in his most famous hymn, and though this world with devils filled 
should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him, his rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure, one little world word shall fell him. That's verse four, or verse three rather, of a mighty fortress is our God, taken from Psalm 46. Rather, we are to do our biblical Christian best to stand in the defense. And we move forward only as God in Christ Jesus moves forward and we follow in behind him. And as I noted just a bit ago, last week I asked you to repeat the word stand after me. Well, this is where we should not, and I believe could not, miss its biblical import and its practical relevance in the battle that God himself is waging and which he invites his church to join him. We are to stand four times in three verses, it said. And from the viewpoint of military strategy, I've been out for almost, well, 30 years. Wow, that's hard to believe. Almost 30 years, 29. Holding ground, standing in the defense, is one of the most difficult things for a commander in his unit to do, especially over time. It's hard to hold ground. So we're not doing less here if we're in the defense and we stay in the defense. But I'm suggesting it's our part. Going on the attack, being successful in the attack is much easier. But then what? Well, the then what is holding the ground gained. And it's very difficult especially against a determined enemy. And does anyone here doubt the determination of our enemy, the devil? Anybody who's been in church, anybody who's been in ministry for very long has seen people get picked off one by one, maybe whole families at a time. It's hard holding ground. And we shouldn't doubt the determination of our enemy because he is and he will be all the way to the end even though he knows that his doom is sure, determined to defeat us. And if he can't do that, then to distract us, delay us, discourage us, send us in despair. And he knows precisely how to do that. And we need to do a much better job of preparing for our defense. Verses 14 and 15 say this, Stand, therefore... Having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Now we are instructed, no, actually commanded as individuals and as families and as a church to stand in the defense against the schemes of the devil from verse 11. Four times in three verses, and then we're given specific instructions as to what to wear in the defense to protect ourselves, which is the full armor of God. And what do you suppose we are to do with all of this? What's the main point here, do you suppose? We must stand. That's our job. That's what this text is telling us. In the sports world, it's often said that defense wins championships. Have you ever heard that before? Anybody? We have very few sportsmen here. (laughs) And sports players. There's a big one up there. Go Chelsea. 
(laughs) And it's usually true. If a team can shut down the opponent's offense or offense, then that's way more than 50% of the battle, so to speak, to win. Playing defense is hard. It takes work and hustle, and it takes far more grit and determination to win on the defense than it does to run the offense. Why do you think, for example, the guys on the offense are often so pretty, and the guys on the defense are often, well, so not pretty? The offense gets the glory, but defending is hard work and gets the championship, gets the win. And yet this is precisely the role that the Lord Jesus himself has given us, his church. We are to defend. We are to hold the ground he has gained. We are to stand with him. So what are those pieces of armor that God in Christ Jesus gives us and commands us to wear if we are to stand firm and successfully in the battle that he is waging? Last week I referred to a misunderstanding of Christians and churches on this question. It's really quite plain and simple, but we've made it much harder than it has to be or than it is. There is no mystery to unlock here. In each case, the item of armor is the very thing named. Let's look at it. Verse 14. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. What's the belt of truth? It's truth. We don't have to go looking for a belt of truth, discovering what it is, like we're on a scavenger hunt or something like that. The the belt of truth is truth. It's believing the truth. It's speaking the truth. It's teaching the truth. It's obeying the truth. And oh, by the way, Jesus Christ is the truth embodied. Do you remember when he said in John chapter 8, Neil just read it a bit ago, verse 32, you will know, speaking to those who had believed him, specifically the Jews who then then wanted to kill him just a few verses later, but never mind that. It said the Jews who believed him, he was speaking to, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So we need the truth. And we need not to be misled. You know, that's a regular command in Scripture. Do not be misled. Let no one deceive you. A couple of months back, I was um, invited to be interviewed on CHPN. Many of you heard it before I did because you sent me a text or an email or something. And what didn't get on the on the radio was her last question to me, Sylvia's last question to me, and it was, if you, could, if you would pray for one thing for the church in Winnipeg, what would it be? My response was, for, the, for a common understanding of the truth. Because that's not what we have, it's obvious, and, and the way it's obvious is that there are so many varieties of it out there, they can't all be true. So wh- whether we're talking about Christians in politics or Christians in culture or Christians in the church, we must understand that, that the first line of defense is the truth. 
God's truth, rightly interpreted, rightly understood, rightly applied. The breastplate of righteousness, still in verse 14, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. What is the breastplate of righteousness? Righteousness. Again, we're not looking somewhere for a breastplate somewhere that says righteousness. It's righteousness. Romans 3, verses 21 to 22. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. The second line of defense, even if we're just talking chronological here, according to this text is righteousness, the very righteousness of Christ that we receive unto ourselves by faith. It's not our righteousness. We don't have any righteousness. We all know that if we're honest with each other, if we're honest with ourselves. But it's Jesus' righteousness that was demonstrated at the cross and vindicated or justified in the resurrection. Verse 15, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Now, if anybody, it, it probably was a jarring thing for people to, and, and Pastor Yuri was worried about this, probably a jarring thing for people to drive by seeing on our sign, uh, the biblical church at war. My land, what does that mean? Well, come and see. But notice this in verse 15, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of war, no, peace, peace. Hebrews 9, verses 26b to 28, but as it is, Christ has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. The gospel is a gospel of peace that puts us right with God and no longer at war with him. Verse 16. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can ex extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Now, there were just too many passages to choose from when it comes to illustrating that the shield of faith is faith. Oh, one thing I wanted to note here in verse 15, the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Notice that readiness is the goal, it's the point. Readiness. Readiness to stand in the battle. Especially when it comes to us by surprise. Nobody likes to get ambushed. I know but it's, it's a very effective way of defeating your enemy to, to ambush them. The devil's been doing that for thousands of years and he'll do it until he's thrown in the pit. That's, that's just what he does. He's a liar. He's a deceiver. He's a very unseemly individual.
But the gospel we preach is to save people from sin, death, and the wrath of God and to put us right with him. You can call that a gospel of peace. Verse 16, I already said that, it's the shield of faith. Romans 14, 23, it jumped out at me probably 25 years ago. I've never gotten over it. I still don't know altogether what to do with it. But here it is, for whatever does not come from faith is sin. Is that crazy or what? If if this is a true statement, and and I believe that it is, for this is God's word to us by the Holy Spirit through his apostle Paul in this case. If whatever is not of faith is sin, how much of my life is not sin every single day? Did I brush my teeth this morning by faith? No. And yet it is this faith that is the shield of faith that provides us the shield to defend us against the fiery darts of the enemy, the very devil himself. Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Hebrews 11, verses 1 and 6. Now faith is the assurance or the substance, like, like this, this pulpit here is made of something substantial. Faith is the substance or the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction or the evidential, evidentiary proof, it's a legal term, the conviction of things not seen. So if we have it, we no longer hope for it. If we see it, we do not any longer need faith. It's here. We have it. Verse 6 is a stumbling block. And, and without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So don't, don't miss this. There are four definitions of faith here. Number one, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Number two, faith is the conviction of things not seen. Number three, faith believes that God exists and faith believes that he rewards those who seek him. Verse 17, we're almost done, I promise. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. There are two there, the helmet of salvation I just love this concept. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14 probably puts it most plainly. In Christ you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now, I just want you to notice here, this verse is probably, these two verses, are probably the best antidote and defense to those who would come and tell you that you can lose your salvation. Listen to me. If you have been saved, you have been sealed according to God's word by the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. Period. 
Now, it might be that people unjustifiably believe themselves to be saved or people unjustifiably believe that others are saved. That's a possibility. and I, That's my biggest fear in the church today. But it is absolutely true, although all of the implications I do not commend, but it is absolutely true that if we are once saved, we are always saved. That God has saved us, God is saving us, and God will save us in the end. Listen to it again. In Christ you also, when you heard the word, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed at that moment. You get it? Were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Not through baptism, not by walking an aisle, not by signing a card, not by praying some special prayer, but when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Verse 30, still Ephesians chapter 4. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were, past tense, sealed for the day of redemption. Also then, the word of the Spirit in verse 17, which is the word of God. We don't have to, we don't have to go looking for a sword of the Spirit. We know what it is because he, he makes it explicit. It's the word of God. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, no, not even you, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Now let's not lose sight of the fact that these are all weapons of preparation and of implementation on the defense. While some of these can be used well and effectively in the attack, especially the word of the, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, that is not the intention of this passage. The main intention of this passage is to prepare us to stand. But, but, once we have set the defense, once we are prepared to stand, I should say once the Lord has set the defense and we are standing in it, that's a better way of putting it, once we are prepared to stand, once we are well positioned to hold the ground that Jesus has gained, he will call on us to do what is called in the military to project force into new territory. He is doing it, but he is doing it through us. Finally, verses 18 to 20. I want you to notice there are two things here, two weapons mentioned here. I want you to pick them out. Verse 18. Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication... To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth, boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. What are the two weapons? Prayer. Preaching the gospel. Close, though. That's good. Perseverance is a Christian character trait. Prayer and the spoken word of God. These two especially can be used on the offense. But we have to do so only discerningly. This has been the church at war, the biblical church at war 
in the Easter Word and Worship series, in Christ Jesus, God has overcome sin and death once for all and forever. And I do hope that you'll be able to join us again on Friday at 10 o'clock right here in the same space for our Good Friday service. We try to keep it about an hour. And then on Sunday, of course, we will celebrate Easter Sunday with some baptisms. So we look forward to that. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we are so grateful that you have not left us to, to fend for ourselves, to figure these things out. and do our best to follow Jesus. What trouble we would be in then. But you have given us your Holy Spirit who who first at the moment we believed in Jesus, according to your word, sealed us in our salvation until we can receive our full inheritance, as Neil prayed for earlier. Or, as verse 30 of chapter 4 says, until the day of redemption. Thank you for that, and help us, Lord, to know that you are for us. You are not against us. And you give us community to help us. You give us leaders and teachers to help us. You give us your word to help us. You've given yourself to help us. And while we believe, please, Lord, pardon our unbelief. In Jesus' name.